With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today on Backroom Politics, immigration creates strange bedfellows, but how divisive is immigration reform in this country? North Korea turns up the heat and the rhetoric. How nuts are they in his war on the horizon? Gun control takes center stage, but GOP filibuster plans may extend the run. And the legacy and grace that was Margaret Thatcher. This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How are you? Welcome back from Mexico. Yes, you suffered through a little bit of snow, I understand, we while did. I was basking in the sun. You got you had your own little snow down there in Mexico, but that's a whole drug problem. <laughs> and to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's a former vice president of government affairs for... Uh, National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Good to be here. Good to be here. Good to have Al back. And Thank you. It is good to have Al back. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former General Counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee. She is the former General Counsel for the Maritime Administration, Obama appointee and Washington Insider, Denise Kraft. Hi, Denise. Hi, Justin. Well, good. Welcome back. Thank you. So glad. And to my 1 o'clock, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He has served at last count under four presidents. He's longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington Insider, and a very distinguished and gentle fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, it's so glad to have everybody back in the country. It, it, well, it is, but we've got one missing in action. Joining us remote from parts in Maryland unknown, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, longtime Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, everybody from Chevy Chase, Maryland. Well, I said undisclosed. You're not supposed to tell them, Carl. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Good Lord, Carl. You're killing us. Hey, lots, 
Lots happening since we took our hiatus for Easter break last week, but let's just get right into it. Uh, the big talk in Washington, among other things right now, is immigration. The immigration gang of eight are continuing to wheel and deal. They're bringing in all the stakeholders, including some strange bedfellows, where unions and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have come together in some sort of tentative, fragile, eggshell agreement on moving forward on immigration. However, as this politics in Washington continues to dictate, uh, that's not necessarily a done deal now. The big question is, now that we've gone off of the financial cliff, and we'll talk about that in the coming days, coming weeks, coming forward, immigration's a big deal. Denise, I'm going to start with you, because this was in your purview when you were uh, House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee. Right now, what is the big focal point on the immigration deal that might be coming out of Capitol Hill, and why do Americans really need to keep their eye on the ball on this? Well, I, I think on the House side, Justin, it's going to be dependent on which committee is going to be moving these different pieces of legislation. You had my former committee, which was the House Homeland Security Committee, that was interested in border-specific issues. You had the Judiciary Committee that was interested in more of the law enforcement side. So the question is going to be on the House side, how many um, hearings are they going to have and how many committees will they allow to have these hearings in order to move these pieces of legislation out of the House? Uh, now, that's on the House side. Alan Moore, longtime Senate uh, staffer, on the, on, they're going to have the same problem on the Senate side, I would imagine. There's going to be a fight as who's going to have governing control on the legislation going forward. Well, it... it, it uh it will almost certainly be in the Judiciary Committee, but the key is to get a bipartisan agreement up front, and that, that sort of greases the, the skids, if you will, for the process. And there is That's a, our Senate gang of eight. A gang of eight, four Democrats, four Republicans, with some very important help from some outside groups. The, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO worked, have worked very hard. They've had... They've, they've, they've come close to success, lost ground. They seem to be back more or less uh, in, in, on track with ground rules for visas for temporary workers. Not agriculture workers, that's a different issue, but temporary workers. How many visas should there be? What should the ground rules be? How much do you have to pay those people? These are all the kinds of nitty-gritty details that bog down the process. But it looks, finally, as though some of those those less visible but really important issues are working themselves out, and we could have an announced deal here within a week or so, even perhaps the end of the week, although there's, it's a little unclear. Uh, this immigration has been an issue that's kind of taken its own priority since 2011, or since 2001, September 11th, but Bob Hines, it's an issue that's been longstanding, uh, even from back in the days when you were in the House, and Congressman Al, back when you were representative, immigration's always been an economic-driven issue, not so much a security-driven issue. Is that changing? Are we seeing a, re a revision, or a reversion, rather, back to it being economically-driven versus security-driven? Congressman Al, you start. You asked, Bob, but, but first of all, it goes back farther than that. Okay. We have, we have had anti-immigrant views in this country forever. forever. And the Statue of Liberty stands there with beautiful words, and uh, every American should feel a little hypocritical every time they read them because uh, we didn't we didn't like the Irish, we didn't like the Chinese, 
we didn't like uh, the Southern Europeans, we didn't like the Eastern Eastern Europeans. All in a row. Yes, and and, and we fought every one of them. And and they, in turn, then became Americans and opposed anybody else coming into the the Exactly. So there's nothing new about this. Uh, I think that uh, you you were right, Justin, in in the sense that there's an economic aspect and another aspect, but there's just a plain old... uh, it's not racism. It's what what kind of ism is it? It's uh, it's bigotry. Well, yeah, it's, it's, they don't they don't want those new people. Alan Moore. Well, and it's ethnocentrism as is is the word. Where we get all caught up in being the American the word, and we don't want new ones. That's no. right. We're we're full, but we're not full, of course. And we actually need as as the European countries and Japan and others who are who are having watching aging populations. We need young people coming in. Providing vitality, job, work, and revenue to the system. And we do, and we do this everywhere. In Washington State, you will, you will every so often, every ten years or so, you'll, you'll see ads about against the Californiaization of Washington State. Don't let those Californians move up, you know, and because they raise our property values, and therefore our houses, it's harder to buy a house, and on and on and on. It's just, uh, it, it's, 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 it's us versus them. And by the way, you can join the discussion by calling in toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Go ahead, Bob Hines. We're talking here, and we recognize over generations how different groups have come to the United States and how how well it has worked. And, uh, you know, by the time it's a second or third generation, particularly, you know, people are relatively, uh, particularly in the younger groups, you know, uh, it's, it's interracial and inter-ethnic uh, uh, relationships are just very, very common now. But, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But, you know, but we, when we talk about just the historical aspect of immigration, Americans seem to have a short memory when it comes to that. I mean, you hear... A lot of people talk about, well, you know, they're they're not real Americans. They, you know, they don't get it. They don't understand it. With the thought process being, hey, look, the only real Native Americans we have here are the Indians. We displaced them centuries ago. Uh, you know, so Denise Krepp, when we look at the argument of this being the dilution of the American culture on Capitol Hill, how does that play out? Does that argument get people on board? But Unfortunately, what I'm recalling is a statement that a certain member of Congress made last week from the state of Alaska regarding those that did not look like him. Oh, and his his family farm and those people walking, yes. Yes, and and I I think that this may be more of a generational... um, By the way, the congressman was done. generation, people are not going to say, just because you don't look like me doesn't mean that you cannot be American, especially, and I'd like to remind folks that one way people are becoming Americans is to fight for the U- uh, fight in the U.S. military, and, and that is one uh, step that uh, I hope that they do not touch, is that if you are willing to fight for the United States government um, in a uniform, that you can become a U.S. citizen, and not only you, but your, your, uh, your family as well. Well, Alan Moore, when we look at it from... Not so much the security side. I mean, there's still a security issue with this. 
the U.S. government still has to secure its northern and southern borders, as well as the maritime borders on the east and west. That's the security side. But there's a very delicate balance when we talk about the thought leadership coming from countries like India, even China, uh, even some of the Western European nations are having problems finding the right visas to get their people to bring some of that thought leadership in areas like IT, finance, uh, here to the United States. Where is that balance, and what trumps which? Is it the security, or is it the economic factor? Well, it's both. You know, we have to move down both paths at the same time. We are trying to not only train some of the world's smartest young people, but we're trying to keep them. Having said that, uh, we're feeding a brain drain that occurs in some of these poor countries. You see this in particular in the health sector, where we are we, we are stealing trained health workers from poor countries in Africa. Usually they don't come from the poorest country directly to the West. They go from the poorest country to just a poor country, and then they go to a European country or the Middle East on their way to America or Canada. I mean, there, there, there is no free lunch anywhere here. Every time there's people who are moving, who we want to have come here, somebody else is losing that person. Having said that, we have great opportunity here. We do a lot of the training, and it is in our, our, our self-interest to keep as many of these folks as we can, even as we make the... the the public more and more comfortable that the uh, the borders aren't just porous, and people are pouring in willy-nilly without without any uh, anything to uh, to impede them. So we have to proceed down both paths, keep the borders as strong as we can, and to find ways to encourage people to come and stay without doing damage to so these crowds. The other part for me is how do you define an immigrant? Um, I think too many people right now are defining immigrants as Hispanics. Well, first of all, not every Hispanic is going to say they're Hispanic. You're going to have a division between Mexicans and Cubans and Dominicans and El Salvadorans and Venezuelans and others. And each of these groups are going to have their own different issues that are going to need to be addressed. And by the way, that's just within the Latin American population. When you start looking at the Southeast Asia population, they also have their different issues. And the India is going to be different than Korea, for exactly. example, in technology. And so the question is to me, how do you meld the differences and the benefits that each of these countries bring to making a solid immigration reform? Carl Tubin, you know, we're starting to see a lot more of the states uh, and state legislatures get involved in the immigration discussion. Uh, why is it at a federal level the immigration policy is going to be set? Why are the states chiming in? Why is it important for the states? Well, I, I think that, you know, different states have different problems, and I think that they want to uh, address their own problems individually as states. Uh, it will be interesting to see when the federal law if, if and when the federal law is put in place, you know, how that's going to work uh, with state law. Usually federal law will supersede state law, but I think there could be a lot of lawsuits from states saying, well, we had our laws, da-da-da-da-da. 
Congressman Al. Well, and, and, and another factor is that the states waited around for a very long time for the federal government to act, and it didn't. And so they finally decided to fill the vacuum. Well, Alan Moore, this, this brings up the case, you know, you look at the border states out on the southern border. You look at Texas, New Mexico, you know, the, the big ones, Texas and Arizona, have pretty much created their own policies. Uh, some have been even challenged in, or about to be challenged in the Supreme Court, i.e. the ID check out of Arizona. When you look at that, they call it a security issue. They call it a law enforcement issue. Is it, in fact, a real economic issue at the state level? Look, it, again, there are economic aspects. There are security aspects. Um, and and it, 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 to some extent, it depends on the, on the eye of the beholder. And, and then sometimes people with one motive, which may be, keep those so-and-sos out of here, finds what uh, looks like a legitimate uh, rationale for making uh, I immigration tougher. So it's, it's really, really hard to, uh, to generalize. Even people of, of good faith who are welcome, welcoming recognize you have to have rules that are enforceable and it makes some sense. And the states themselves are not going to have the same position. What Arizona is thinking right now is not going to be the same thing that North Carolina is going to think about. And I, I bring up the example of North Carolina. Several of the rural states have problems right now with doctors. They don't have family practice doctors in the rural counties in the deep south, so they're turning to foreign doctors. So they want foreign doctors to come in to practice in the areas where we can't get U.S. doctors to come into. The other issue that they're going to have is migrant workers in North Carolina as well as migrant workers in Maryland. So the way in which they're going to view the immigration issues can be much different than those that you know may be thinking differently in Arizona and New Mexico. Well, you know, when when we look at the Gang of Eight and some of the issues that you're talking about, why is it that uh, we're seeing the almost coming together of two very disparate parties, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO, Bob, that, those are strange bedfellows when it comes to the immigration talk. You're talking about unions taking away possible jobs from Americans, and the U.S. Chamber saying, look, we don't want to pay $500 for a quart of strawberries. Those are very strange bedfellows coming together. Well, not necessarily. Uh, neither one of them want to see a total onslaught of, of immigration coming in. They want rules and regulations. Both of them do. The fact that they can come together, I think, is somewhat surprising. But you can also understand that they see it as if, if the two of them can cut it, can bring something to Capitol Hill that says we can live with this particular approach, then that's a pretty decent foundation to start with. And I have, and, and, and uh, it, it looks to me like that is probably going to be the foundation both of what the House and the Senate are going to do. Congressman Al. What is surprising about it is that both of those groups are being far-sighted in this regard, not two organizations you would put at the top of the list of people who think ahead. Uh, but uh, if, if they can resolve this in a way that, uh, that, that solves their problems that they have between themselves, uh, then they're not going to have something shoved down their throat that, that neither of yeah. them like later well, on. I think that's one of the reasons that they're, they've gotten into the game because I think they take a look at what's going on in the House and Senate and they see that there are some real efforts being made to come to some kind of a rational, rational solution and I think they see that it's smart to get in and be a player r rather than wait until the end and try to 
you know, put something in that nobody's thought about. And I'll tell you this, there is there is no member of Congress that is not delighted when you bring him a, or her a solution. Everybody brings them problems and dumps it in their lap and says, now fix it. But when somebody comes in and says, why don't you consider this? And we've worked out the details and what have you. Uh, members of Congress love that for a whole variety of reasons. Alan Moore. It's also interesting to reflect on, on the, 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 the history of the of, uh, labor movement in the U.S. and the AFL-CIO. I don't claim to be an expert, but I know that historically the AFL-CIO has been very, very supportive of a pretty, uh, a pretty open policy on immigration, not least of all is because they get a lot of their newer members as immigrants, and they are in the same kind of conflict that politicians are. Gosh. I've got members who are saying, I'm an immigrant, or my family immigrated, or I've got relatives who are here and they're not documented and they're at risk of being deported. At the same time, there are other union members who are saying, keep them out of here, they're going to take our jobs. So what the unions have done a lot over the years to sort of keep their shrinking membership together and being fairly open on immigration and so what they're trying to do is we'll, we'll, we'll go so far, but we do need certain uh, limits and restrictions. And the, and, the, and the corporations tend to lean towards the, who needs rules? Right. So, but, but, but they also recognize that they're in a world of regulation and rules that they have to operate in. So they don't have as big uh, a, a divide to close because of self-interest. And that's less in, in politics that self-interest may or may not be visible for given members depending upon where they're from. Congressman Al? Well, I think if, if this thing gets close to passing and these two organizations haven't taken positions and one does at the last minute, they're likely to win. So whether that's the U.S. Chamber or the AFL-CIO, if at, uh, at the crucial closing stage of this, uh, they really put a, a lot of pressure on Congress, they can leave the other guy, uh, you know, with the short end of the stick. And so it's smart to work it out ahead of time. But the problem is going to be, you know, is the solution going to be deficit neutral? And, and that's what, I mean, just right before I came here, I thought I read something on uh, the Politico uh, blog that the Heritage Foundation was coming out against some of the immigration reform because they thought it was going to be too expensive. Because they said, you know, you've got Obama health care, you've got guns, you've got other things. How expensive is this going to be and, you know, should we be doing this? Well, when you talk about expense, I mean, you're talking about just on securing the border. The, gov the U.S. government has spent over a billion and a half dollars and still has not gotten any better at securing the border, yeah. depending on who you talk to. Right. You're talking about putting in another billion dollars to secure a border that isn't necessarily the major problem when you talk about the immigration side of what the Gang of Eight are talking about, which leads me to my next question, Alan Moore, is what are going to be the key points that you think are going to come out of the discussion with the Gang of Eight? Well, the, you know, the big issue that's been there from the beginning is whether people who are here without documents here illegally, there's a big debate over how you should refer to these folks. Um, they did violate the law to come here. They know that they're subject to being deported. So first of all, is you say, what about those people? Are we going to let them stay? Are we talking pathway to uh, citizenship? Well, first thing we're talking about is whether they have a problem in just staying. 
And we're pretty much beyond that, but that wasn't necessarily easy to say, if you're here without documents and we catch up with you in the legal system, do you get to stay or are you deported immediately? And we pretty much got everybody on board saying we don't have immediate deportation. That is a huge, huge first step. Then the question is, do they get to be citizens? And 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 how do they get to be citizens? Or do they just get to a legal a long time indefinite legal status, which is a position that, that Jeb Bush took in a book that he wrote that came out recently and he found himself a little behind uh, Marco Rubio and some others who leapfrogged that position of let them let them stay now and let them stay indefinitely legally to others who are saying let's find a pathway to citizenship which was anathema not very long ago to many people and it's become more and more acceptable those are the big the big hard conceptual questions but we've also heard you know Denise Krep that they want to solidify the e-verify process and they want to make that what is already somewhat quote-unquote mandatory to make it really, really, really mandatory now. Uh, is that going to be a fight on the Hill to make E-Verify the true verification of worker process? The question is going to be, one, how much is it going to cost? I mean, E-Verify is going to be a huge system that will be, you know, have to be implemented throughout the entire country. And, you know, you've got states that are saying, some states saying they do want to participate, some states say they don't want to participate. So how are you going to make people participate if they don't want to participate. And the second part of this, and this is going to be me, you know, maybe going off on, on the cyber side saying, who's protecting all this information? And how are we making sure that, um, you know, nobody is touching it and they're not actually manipulating it? And we've got a caller. Call, caller from the 202 area code. You're on the air with Backroom Politics. Caller? Caller not there. Okay. We'll put them back on hold. Uh, but when we when when we look at uh, when, when we look at everything being said and done, when we look at a deal possibly coming out, everybody agrees this has got to be bipartisan. Congressman Al, are some of the minute details going to possibly kill the uh, a deal going through on immigration? Is it that much of a third electric rail? I would think there are other things that are more likely to tip it over than than that. Uh, the thing that that concerns me is something that uh, Denise said. Denise Denise said, "You got two committees." I, I once ran a bill that had three committees assigned to it: sequential jurisdiction. We got it out of Energy and Commerce, forty-two to nothing, and then. Public Works was busy doing something else, so we waited. And when we finally got something out of Public Works, it had to go to Ways and Means. And by the time it got through Ways and Means, Congress had ended. And Congress just went away, and it and it died. Uh, <clears throat> so, it's it, it, if 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 those two committees get deadlocked. Uh, there are all kinds of ways to slow it down the process until it, it, it's irrelevant because Congress has gone, gone home. Well, Bob Hines, on that point, I would I would suspect that immigration being as big an issue as it is, that it's not going to, it, number one, I don't think a jurisdictional problem will be that much to be overcome because it is something that everybody is, everybody is interested in, number one. It's, it's too big not too big to fail, 
but it's too big to fail on some on some small and minor issues. Very valid point, but still, the proof in the pudding is still going to be the details that come out of it. it it's going to take one pathway to leadership criteria that's going to throw this whole thing out of balance, Denise. I mean, are we really going to get to a point where traditionally in an issue where we would be looking at staff to come up with the deal on language, we're going to see more and more of the members taking center stage on this? You'll have to. Yeah. Absolutely, because each of these members are going to have their own constituent interests, and they're going to want to make sure that they're addressed. And by the way, it's not only addressed in committee, but it's also going to have to be addressed on the floor, because in addition to having to go through those two different committees, maybe three, maybe four, it could be the Wild West on the floor, and the question is going to be, what are people going to try to put in on the floor, and then, depending on what they put in, can you actually pass the bill? Well, Alan Moore, the Gang of Eight on the Senate side, do you think that there's going to be some comprehensive dialogue before they can get out of the Senate and put it over to the House? Well, when they do get it to the floor, trust me, they will have a very tight uh, limits on what uh, what kinds of amendments will be allowed. This is the new Senate. Um, so it's not going to be uh, a free-for-all. But if there's one thing that, that, that causes me or reminds me that I think we're, we're, we're getting close, not least of all this gang of eight, is the fact that I haven't in weeks and weeks heard the charge, this is amnesty. Do you remember that? It wasn't that long ago that people were screaming, how can we give amnesty to these lawbreakers? That's not even part of the discussion anymore. The, the, the Republicans seemed, knock wood, seemed to have learned a lesson in, uh, in last November, and they just got their behinds whipped when it came to, to Hispanic voters. And I think they've, they've come to the reality that that, that was a loser, a big-time loser politically. So uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, Stay tuned. Well, we're, we're, we're going to keep an eye on this, obviously. This is not an issue that's going to go away, and it'll probably pop up on the show here in the coming weeks. But with that, we're coming up on the bottom half hour. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to bring on our international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie, and we're going to talk about some of the craziness coming out of Pyongyang and North Korea and breaking news coming out of North Korea about a possible missile launch at any time. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. 
Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell, with our usual gaggle of political insiders. Joining us now... Gaggle. It's a new word. No, it's not. That's what they call a bunch of geese. uh, Well, (laughs) we squawk like a bunch of geese. Joining us now is our international expert. He is the vice president of China Affairs for the Eurasia Center. He's also a bar certified attorney in the great state of New York and the District of Columbia. He is Ralph Winnie. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Justin. Ralph, need you to talk up, my friend. Sure. How's everyone doing? We're doing fine. Hey, uh, we're going to talk a little bit of North Korea. The rhetoric coming out of North Korea has just taken a whole new level of crazy. Uh, in the past couple of weeks since we've been away, and it's getting even worse as we speak. Uh, CNN is reporting that, according to sources in Pyongyang, that the North Korean government is at a point where they can launch a missile at any time. The question is, where does that missile go? At the same time, Admiral Locklear, the commander of Pacific Command out in the Pacific Rim for U.S. forces, uh, was testifying today that we do have the ability to shoot down any missile threats into Guam or Hawaii and even to our allies in South Korea and Japan. At the same time, Japan has deployed or asked the U.S. to deploy Patriot missile batteries in Japan, similar to the Patriot missile deployments that have happened in the South Korean Peninsula. Dr. Ralph, I want to go to you first. Um, Everybody is speculating. How is Pyongyang and what is their thought process in putting out 
a declaration, a redeclaration of war against South Korea, basically nullifying the armistice from back in the 50s, and taking a very aggressive military stance. Where's this coming from? Well, I think if you looked at the previous history of, of what we would consider confrontation between Seoul and, and Washington, um, what's, what's happened is there's been rapid escalation of a crisis until the U.S. and South Korea ends up capitulating, buying what would we, we would consider temporary peace with aid or investments uh, into North Korea. But what's happening now is um, the, the idea is that uh, Kim feels he might be able to gain more from striking out at his enemies um, in an effort not to trigger a general conflict, but to bolster his own credentials with, with the North Korean military, who are still suspicious of Kim's youth and inexperience. At the same time, the U.S. is very concerned and trying to figure out how, how to carry out what's considered a proportional retaliation without triggering any kind of general conflict. But as we are aware, they're not big margins for error. And there's a deep concern that there might be an overreaction by South Korea, um, given Park Geun-hee's statements that she might go after the North's command and control center um, if there is, an, in fact, a nuclear test um, over South Korea. Yeah, but, but so Ralph, when, 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 we, when, we look at, when we look at the rhetoric coming out and the concern of a, quote-unquote, overreaction, in your terms, by South Korea – it almost seems like the overreaction is coming out of Pyongyang and not Seoul. Well, um, I tend to uh, go along with what the South Koreans feel, but the U.S. government um, is deeply concerned um, about South, Korea, South Korea's uh, reaction um, because if they, um, if, they, if, if they attack the command and control center, it, it could lead to... Uh, a full-out um, uh, war in, in Asia. And certainly China is, is deeply concerned um, because what everyone realizes is that the, um, the, the Chinese government, their whole legitimacy is based on providing a stable economic environment so their people can uh, prosper economically and make money. Um, what, what the North Koreans are doing is um, causing instability in the region and uh, creating real barriers to promoting trade and economic investment among various countries, even among the Chinese and the North Koreans, where uh, there is about $5 billion in trade between the two countries. Congressman Al has a question for you, Ralph. Yeah, get, get, sure. Put ahead. yourself in the position of the North Koreans. And okay. so you decide that you're going to uh, launch a missile. Who do you launch it at? Do you launch it at South Korea, J Japan, or at the big guy, us? Uh, what, what would what would you, you think they would think would be the most uh, helpful for whatever it is their goal is? Well, I think given um, the history of the Japanese Imperial Army uh, in Asia, I mean, there's still deep-rooted animosity among um, not only North Koreans, but of the other Asian countries towards the actions of the Japanese Imperial Army, um, the North Koreans might want to launch an attack, launch a missile over Japan. Um, 
they still harbor deep-seated resentment and animosity because of the of the atrocities that were committed by the Imperial Army during uh, in the 30s and through the end of World War II. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us in the U.S., but what we have to remember is that North Korea is still feels that they're in a state of war not only with Japan but with the United States. In the in the, in the United States, if you polled people, everyone uh, would feel that the war ended after the signing of the armistice, after the end of the Korean War. Not in North Korea. The, the Korean War has never ended in their mind. And this is where, if the United States is looking for a productive way to engage North Korea, then they might end up having to discuss reinstating and possibly updating the armistice agreement. Um, that could be an option, but you're going to need to have um, South Korea, the United States, and possibly China play a role in those kind of negotiations. But that would sort of take the uh, focus away from the military side of things um, and focus on um, bringing an end to the armistice. So uh, that, that could Ralph, be an uh, option. Bob Hines, Bob Hines got a question for you. Ralph, Go ahead, Bob. Uh, uh, as the United States uh, begins to put missile and defense systems in Guam and other places in Asia, how does China react to that? I mean, how, do they well, have any concern, or would, would something like that be, mean that they might say to their North, North Korean friends, would you please slow down a little bit? I don't like what the United States is doing because of what you're doing. Sure, that's a very good question, and I would say the additional U.S. military presence is very worrisome to Beijing, and from the U.S. Perspective, perspective, it is intended to be, because what the U.S. wants to do is demonstrate to the Chinese that unless they get the North Koreans to fall in line, uh, the Chinese, in effect, will invite exactly the kind of U.S. presence in Asia that they would like to avoid. And remember, the Chinese are very concerned about maintaining control, order, and stability in Asia so that their, their government can stay in power. I mean, that goes back to the whole legitimacy of the government of the People's Republic of China. And what they have to do, as I said before, is they have to create a very strong economic viable model so that the people will uh, not look at other alternatives. And what the North Koreans are indirectly doing is creating a lot of problems uh, in Asia that that are affecting the Chinese markets, the South Korean markets. It's uh, it's disrupting uh, uh, trade between the uh, respective Asian countries. So, uh, you, got a, you got a question for you, or you got a comment, Alan Moore? No, I mean it. it, it it goes without saying that China is the only country that has any possibility of having any influence on these guys because they are economically dependent. And China protects North Korea part, in part because it wants a buffer between uh, itself and, and our friend South Korea. Having said that, what's going on now, I think we make a mistake in trying to find logic to, trying to understand this is crazy stuff. You, what we do is we make fun of it. You watch any night of uh, the, the nightly comedians, and they all find reasons to poke fun and to ridicule photos and so on. My sense of it is that this is, if we're trying to find a parallel that we can relate to, it's like a tantrum 
from a three-year-old. And what you don't understand what's behind it, they're throwing themselves <laughs> around, threatening, and as the adult, you stand off to the side, you try to make sure that they don't hurt themselves, but if they start running with scissors, then you have to intervene. Well, if they shoot something off, and we haven't talked about what might be in this missile, if yeah. nobody's really talking about a, a nuclear weapon, we have no reason to believe they could mount one and deliver one, um, even though we know they have some capacity. But it doesn't matter if it's some other kind of killing munitions, if they lob it into the, to the middle of Seoul, we will have to come back in space. That's the running with scissors part. In the meantime, I think we're just still shaking our heads, trying to find logic where very little exists. Well, you know, it, you know what, what strikes me in this is, is that, you know, when you look at the testimony given today by Admiral Locklear, commander of Pacific Command from Allied Forces, Admiral Locklear was very clear in an open forum hearing, uh, non-classified, the question came out from Senator Bill Nelson, Democrat out of Florida. Do we have the capacity to shoot down any missile put out there by Pyongyang? He answered very definitively, yes, we do. And we can protect our allies and our own interests in doing so. Another question came out, uh, and I forget which member of the committee asked, but do they have the capacity to actually put a nuclear warhead on any of their uh, on any of their missile capa or capabilities now, the answer out of Admiral Locklear was flat out no. So it, it seems to me that Pyongyang is writing checks that they can't, or writing checks that they basically cannot cash. Denise Krupp, you've been involved in some of these briefings before on, on North Korea. Are, are, is this typical of the rhetoric that we would expect out of Pyongyang? Are they really going to light the candle on this? I don't know if they're going to light the candle on this, but what I can say is that the countries that they might be lighting the candle on, uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, ourselves uh, with, with Guam and um, Hawaii, are going to be very concerned about this because if they do launch and it does land, I understand we have capacity, whether or not we actually get it in time, what happens to those areas? Um, and I bring that up because Japan is dependent on a lot of people right now for its energy. So if something gets launched over them and all out war starts, how does Japan get its energy? How does South Korea get its energy? You got those two. We've got a lot of service members and their families right now in Okinawa. We have a lot of their service members in Guam. How do you think those service members and their families are feeling right now knowing that they're a sitting target? So you, you've got a lot of the military members saying, you know, we can do this, but I also know that they're beginning to think about how do we protect our own because we're over there. Well, we, we, we've got uh, something like 20, over 20,000 service members just in Korea within 50 miles of the North Korean border. Now, Ralph, when we talk about the border, for example, if this is an economic issue, if this is an attempt to save a rattle to get some sort of economic deal in place, is Pyongyang sending that message by shutting down the uh, the free trade zone between North and South. Um, I, I I think there's a lot of saber rattling on their part. I think it, what it's going to come down to is uh, consistency and continuity on the part of U.S., China, Russia, uh, and South Korea. Um, 
not to uh, not to let up, to continue to show uh, strength of force and not and not back down. I think the Chinese have uh, requested that the North Koreans protect foreign diplomats living in Pyongyang. That came out on Sunday, and the North the Chinese. Uh, well, Ralph, uh, well, Ralph, 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 Pyongyang pretty much came out and said that, look, if you are a foreign national inside Pyongyang, get out. He's pretty much told the embassies in Pyongyang to evacuate. Right, and, and I think that as we see, the Chinese are becoming increasingly discomforted and fed up with, their, with the North Korean leadership. The danger that I see moving forward over the next few years is that the Chinese leadership will have almost no connection with North Korea because um, – the traditional hallmark people-to-people exchanges that started under Mao and Kim Il-sung have, have pretty much tapered off. If you're a young person in China, you have no desire to go to North Korea to participate in any kind of um, cultural business uh, kind of uh, promotion or, t- or tie. You want to come to the U.S., you want to go to Western Europe or Australia, um, your goal is to uh, become an entrepreneur and to make money. And the reason you're involved with the Communist Party is to achieve that end. You have no desire to be a part of a Jewish philosophy or promotion of a radical uh, Stalinist uh, communist ideology. So you have no desire to have a connection with, with uh, North Korea. And that's, I think, the real danger, is as the leadership uh, progresses in China, uh, the younger generation, they're going to have almost no contact with North Korea, and it's going to be harder and harder for them to sort of clamp down. That being said, I think Xi Jinping and the current uh, government in Beijing is going to try and wrap it up because for, because they have a vested interest. They have to maintain control and order and stability. They don't want their own people to, um, to become upset. The younger generation in China has been very vocal on the blogs and the newspapers um, saying that North Korea is a noose around China's neck and that China should just abandon them. Denise, um, for shaking your head. I, I, I'm not shaking my head on, on what Ralph just said about the, the younger generation in China. It's going to be the younger generation also in South Korea. I mean, you, you've got a generation of folks who remember what that war looked like. Seoul is incredibly close to the border, and you'll get a better idea of what's going on in South Korea depending on what happens in Seoul. The majority of the Korean population is in Seoul. So it's very, very close to North Korea right now. If you start seeing people move south, which has always been the plan, that's when you know we've got a problem. Bob Hines, though, we're, yep. seeing, we're seeing, though, a heightened level of alert being put out by DOD on this. Uh, we're seeing a large deployment of additional military assets going into the region. Uh, Admiral Locklear talked today about putting in additional naval resources into the region to protect that. This is getting to a lit keg point. Who is going to flinch first? Is there any way that we could use any of our allies back channel to maybe de-escalate this? Well, I I don't know about back channels, but it seems to me that every time we move assets into the uh, Pacific, I would think the Chinese get a little, uh, they're saying to themselves, geez, we don't need this. This is not what we're looking for. It strikes me that the, the Chinese are going are gonna to just have to sit on those crazy people in Pyongyang, and I would assume that they see that it is in their interest to sit on the crazies. 
And I, I cannot imagine that if they really put their foot down, I cannot imagine the military, at least in, in Pyongyang, who are supplied by the Chinese and need them desperately. I cannot imagine them saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this crazy thing anyway. I just can't see it happening. Now, is, any, is, there, is it possible that a, that a lunatic could get a hold of something and push a button? Of course it is. But I cannot imagine that the Chinese are not in a position and wouldn't be willing to see that, you know, to slow this thing down. It is in their interest. It is not just that they're going to save Pyongyang and, and North Korea. It's in their own interest that, that the place does not blow up. Well, Ralph, this brings up a question, though. You know, when we talk about who is really running the show in Pyongyang, there have been some in, inside the Beltway and some international pundits uh, that are saying that, in fact, Kim Jong-un is just a 27-year-old figurehead. He is, in fact, being dictated to by the military leadership. Is there accuracy in that? Well, I think I think it is, and that was my point when I first uh, first got on the call. Was that um, Kim may feel he gains more from striking out at his enemies in an effort to bolster credentials with with the uh, North Korean military, who still perceive him as very young and inexperienced. So Kim has to shore up his support among the North Korean military, and this is this is a good, probably a good way to do it from his standpoint. But and he, I agree with Ju- Justin. I, yeah, Carl, Carl Tubin, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got uh, a, a comment. One of the c- comments is the other, the other night on the news, uh, it was revealed that the uh, former leader's sister and and uh, uh, other family members are also advising this young man as to what to do and how to do it. Uh, the other question I have for Ralph is, <clears throat> if Something, if a missile were sent to South Korea or any place else tomorrow, what would the Chinese do? Ralph? Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very, very good question. I, um, w- what's very interesting now is that the, the Chinese, there's been relatively no um, outrage at the uh, level of military presence by the U.S. and the allies in in Asia, I mean, they've been relatively silent on the on the, on the missile defense ships, the ground-based system, and the um, the ship that was ordered moved to Guam, which is very unusual. Um, well, yeah, but Ralph, so I mean, I, Ralph, does Beijing, Ralph, does Beijing really have a leg to stand on in this? Well, I think it's they realize that they're going to have to clamp down on, the, on North Korea. It's in their vested interest. They don't want the situation to spiral out of control uh, in Asia. At one time, they were very supportive of uh, North Korea because it was acted as a buffer to U.S. interests in the region. But now North Korea is becoming more and more of a problem. The Chinese for years have tried to educate them and move them along the, the Chinese model as a way to pr- promote economic prosperity, at the same time keeping a regime in power. Rob, Yet the North if, Ralph, if, Pyongyang, if Pyongyang does, in fact, launch the missile, does Beijing right. wash your hands on them? I, I think it also, if it's just over open water, um, it's one thing. If, it, if it's headed towards impact in South Korea, 
Japan or Guam, then it becomes a much more serious uh, issue. And I think you're going to see the Chinese really clamp down on the North Korean leadership. Um, because, as I said before, it's in the Chinese vested interest to maintain control and stability in the region. And they're Congressman becoming increasingly fed up. With the Congressman Al, you've got a question for Ralph. I have a question for Ralph. <clears throat> I, I, it's based on the assumption that neither China nor the United States really want to tangle with each other. Uh, right. And yet, uh, both have to play a role in this. It would seem to me that you would want to have ongoing, regular communication between the United States and China so that nobody makes a mistake uh, in misunderstanding the intentions of whatever actions we take. Do you know whether we have those kinds of uh, communications going with the Chinese? I think uh, certainly tacitly um, behind the scenes you have that kind of relationship. Um, it's not out in the open, but certainly um, I believe the Chinese leadership and the, and the U.S. government are in, are in talks about, about the situation in North Korea. One would certainly hope they Yeah, one would, one would hope. One would hope. One other point I'd like to yeah. Um, any high-level outreach from the United States um, must not send a message to Pyongyang that South Korea is uh, still under the U.S.'s thumb. Because for years, the, South, uh, the North Koreans have portrayed South Korea as a puppet regime of, of, the, of the United States. What the key is going to be is for the U.S. to really highlight and promote South Korea as successful, independent, and an influential global leader and that North Korea is going to go nowhere if it doesn't recognize this. And this may go back to looking for a productive way to engage North Korea on um, reinstating the armistice agreement. That's maybe what this could all boil down to at the very end. Well, you know, this is obviously something that's going to be on everybody's mind. Uh, we're going to be monitoring uh, our friends at CNN here in, uh, in Shelley's back room on the latest coming out of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Ralph Winnie, appreciate it as always. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, when we come back, it's happy hour, by the way, here at Chili's, which means that we're going to order our martinis, our Jack Daniels, cut open our cigars for the final hour of Backroom Politics. When we come back, we're going to talk gun control. Big push coming out of the White House in gun control issues. Big, big stomping on the Senate side by some from Newtown. We'll talk about that and the big gun control debate. When we come back on Backroom Politics, we'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got 
Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, the second hour of the best political show you've never heard of on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, we're going to talk about another big issue happening in D.C. this week. That is the issue of gun control. Gun control is taking center stage today, uh, particularly in the Senate. President Obama, in a huge, huge rally up in Connecticut last night, was calling for a vote on gun control, specifically universal background checks, but his entire speech was riddled with uh, talk of stronger, stricter gun control measures. At the same time, he packed up uh, part of the residents and some of the victims' families of the unfortunate massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, flew them down on Air Force One, at which time they are now on the Senate floor, or the Senate buildings today, 
lobbying for stricter gun control. President Joe Biden today was speaking in front of several key law enforcement issues, or several key enforcement uh, Vice President. What did I say? President? <laughs> yeah. Wow. 2016 already. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden was talking to several uh, senior law enforcement officials at a uh, speech talking about, again, gun control. At the same time, we also have a letter that was put out by 14 Republicans in the Senate saying and vowing to filibuster any gun control legislation coming on the floor. So, that being the case, Gun control is back top tier. Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. When you look at the power of the bully pulpit of the president, bringing the victims' families down on Air Force One and basically hand-carrying them to the Senate, this is a big statement coming out of the White House. Would you agree? I would agree. This, is, this was a horrendous, grotesque series of events. And every time you watch any of these people talking on television, a number of them were featured on 60 Minutes, your heart breaks. It is just so tragic, and you wonder what kind of craziness could create something like this. In the meantime, let's not forget, we've got the president who goes to Newtown. He has a campaign rally type event with the backdrop of all of these people. He talks about the political... Uh, he, he accuses the other side of getting set up to play political tricks to stop this from happening. And then he says, oh, but this isn't about politics. Oh, the more that somebody says it's not about politics, the more it's about politics. It's not just about politics, but it's certainly about politics. And he is trying to squeeze the Republicans into a corner. And, you know, they're, we're going to and it's, in my judgment, it's going to have some background check stuff in it, as well as anti-trafficking stuff. But, but the the Democrats are trying to have their cake and eat it too. Get as much as they can legislatively, but also see if they can inflict political harm on uh, on Republicans. Yeah, but but when we look at the gun control debate, you're talking Congressman now on universal checks. Some some polls have it eight and ten. One poll has it nine and ten Americans agree with the idea of universal background checks. It seems that the only organization that doesn't believe in universal background checks is the lobby of the NRA. Uh, it seems to me that with that type of political support going in favor of it, the NRA might have a tough time sowing this in Congress. One of the things that interests me on this issue and on the immigration issue as well is that the people who oppose it seem to not understand, you know, the, the, the history of it. They're not looking ahead. They're fighting an old battle that they can't win. Uh, and the idea that 18 Republicans in the Senate would filibuster this, if that's the reason we don't pass gun legislation, how do the, uh, how do, given the figures you just gave, 80 to 90 percent of the Americans supporting it, how does the Republican Party defend itself for having killed gun legislation? Well, Bob Hines, a uh, Gloria Borger on CNN earlier, was reporting that a uh, a Republican pollster close to Congress was saying that if they go forward and they filibuster and kill universal background checks, 
that they're in fact doing more damage than they could have done coming out of the 2012 election cycle. Do you believe in that? Yeah, I do. Um, And and let's remind ourselves, 15 years ago, and I think that's about the right time frame, uh, the NRA was in favor of background checks. As, As late as 2008. Well, there you go. I mean, it's amazing how it makes no damn sense at all for, for the Republicans to fall into the trap of saying we don't need to have at least checks. I mean, that is that is a, that is about as 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 reasonable piece of legislation you could possibly you could possibly approach. I can understand some people not wanting you know automatic rifles in there are, are big, but I have a hard time harder time on these large magazines, but on background checks, I don't care how conservative you are, I mean, my God, unless you are a person who for some reason does not want anybody to know that you've got a gun, in which case that would bother me, but anybody who has a legitimate reason, a hunter or a target shooter or a guy who just wants to put it on the wall, no reason not to have a check and say, I own a gun. Alan Moore. Folks, listen up. Alert. There will be a bill. It will include background checks. The devil is in the details, what they're arguing about here. There's a few people who don't want any kind of background checks. Fine. They don't have enough votes to stop this thing in the Senate. What there is a fight over right now on background checks is if you do one for a private sale, does the person who runs that check for you, like at Dick's Sporting Goods, that might run a check for two guys on Craigslist, so they have to keep a permanent record in perpetuity, a permanent record of that of that transaction. That's the thing that's really hanging this up. When you've got 87% of the people, 90%, 91% who, who favor an idea, that's fine. It's probably going to happen. But that doesn't mean they would support every last little detail of whatever somebody wants. It's going to happen. 12 or 13 Republicans cannot stop a bill. 12 or 13 senators of any party. They can slow it down. They can get some delay. They can they can waste a week. They can look ridiculous. They can embarrass other Republicans. They cannot stop a bill with that kind of support. But, That's what's going to happen it, But Von Hines, it seems to me that the Republican Party and the NRA lobby, not to take away from what the NRA does, because the NRA does a lot of good things. But the NRA lobby in this instance seems to be putting out a, some call it a fear tactic, some call it a political campaign, saying that, look, if you have a national database of gun owners maintained by, in this instance, the Department of Justice in an expansion of the NICS program, that what you're doing is setting up the government to start taking away guns. Yes, we already have a NICS program in place that the government doesn't have the capacity or the political viability to take away the guns. Well, consider this. Look how tough it is to get where we are today. The chances of getting the government to take away all the guns is slim and none, and slim left the room a month ago. <laughs> but Denise, Denise, when you look at this political, you have some on the NRA side that are saying, look, It is my inherent constitutional right to own a gun that the Second Amendment, in this case, uh, is designed to keep the government from truly going in and 
putting in totalitarian that the Second Amendment was created so we, in fact, could rise up against a dictatorship coming out of Washington, D.C. With your, with your 30-06, give me a break. Okay, Al, thank you for the Democratic position. But I don't think the, re- I don't think the Constitution was written to say you could have a militia to keep the people from rioting against the government. If you go back and look at the documents, they were talking about they don't have a standing army, but they're going to be able to defend themselves in case the Brits come back. But, but Bob Hines, Bob Hines I, have been, I have been accused by some who listen to this show of being too gun control, particularly as a Republican. Uh, if you go back, and, and I've heard the argument about the Second Amendment being very clear, and, and they do talk about a well-regulated militia. Yep. They do talk about the rights of American citizens to, in fact, own and possess a gun. Yep. It's very clear as saying, look, this is your constitutional right almost as a check and balance in some instances. That goes against what you're saying. Uh, you're uh, saying uh, that no, the Second no, Amendment. No, 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 it doesn't no. at all. No. Look, the First Amendment says you've got a right to petition the government. So you don't have to take a gun into Washington. You just come in and talk to them. What, what they, they didn't want, if you go back and look at some of the documents and some of the debates in the Constitutional Convention, you will discover that they didn't want a standing army. What they wanted to do was have a militia that they could call up in case there was any need for military protection. Well-regulated yeah. Well, the, 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 the language in the Constitution states, and I quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There are some that interpret that as saying that, in fact, that it is the ability of an American citizen to possess guns, that right stems from their ability to keep our state free. Congressman Al. They're reading that beginning after the words of well-regulated, you know, they, they start militia. You know. And I would follow that up. I mean, if you say the word regulated, to me, that means regulations. That means policies. That means programs. That doesn't mean a free-for-all where everybody gets to carry whatever they want to carry. But, but we're, Alan Moore, go ahead, and I'll jump in. The, the Supreme Court this year spoke on this question in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. banned ownership. The Supreme Court said you can't ban it, but you can put rules around it. You can regulate it in different kinds of ways. I don't think there's a constitutional question here, but if there is, then you turn that over to the courts. Congresses don't decide constitutional questions. The Supreme Court alone decides. It's still a fight. The, 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 the gun folks have this fear, and it's been fed by different people over the years, that any kind of investigation will lead to registration, and registration will lead to confiscation. Our own former Attorney General Janet Reno once made that connection and comment. It lives on. Those of us around this table tend to to totally dismiss that and not believe it. But there is a large group of people, 
about whom that issue and no other carries the day for them. That doesn't mean that even them, that even they all uh, would fight some kind of background checks, but that's what's being sorted out right now. This is going to play out. There's going to be legislation with background checks. Listen to me. Congressman Al. The biggest straw man that I can think of in my lifetime has been the one that uh, the government's going to take away all your guns. That has been promoted by the NRA very effectively. Uh, their members, and I, I've talked to a lot of them, uh, you know, in my own district, who are absolutely certain that if you allow any governmental action, it is going to result in their, you know, jackbooted men coming into their house and taking away all their guns. The, 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 the most pro-gun control people I've ever talked to have never suggested taking away people's guns. But Carl Tubin, we, we look at, uh, you know, the situation that happened in New York, for example, where a newspaper basically reproduced the list of registered gun owners in the state of New York, in this instance, upstate around the Hudson River Valley, and published the addresses and names of all the gun owners. Uh, the, the, the states have got a fight on their hands regarding that. That leads to the NRA's efforts of saying, look, that's just another way that the government is going to be able to, one, create the list to make them uh, create the list to make them start to take away the guns. And number two, it also puts those gun owners at risk for crime, house thefts, home invasions. Carl, where is the state going to jump in? Well, I, I, first of all, I think I think that has to be that part of that hopefully has to be taken up in the federal bill and that there has to be um, fences around uh, the list of names so that a newspaper can't take a, the state of Maryland and publish everyone name and address and, and all of, of, of that. That's got to be take, that's got to be protected. Right. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Denise Krepp first then Congressman Al. Carl's right. I mean, there's the, the equivalent on the transportation side is the transportation worker identification credential, and that was mandated by the Maritime Transportation Security Act of 2002. Uh, at that point, about 2003, the state of Florida was saying, well, under our sunshine laws, we can uh, let people, you know, FOIA you, and, and you'll have to hand over information about the transportation workers and the transportation plans, and the federal government came out and said, no, it, it, it doesn't. So. Uh, I, I think the same law and the same concept would uh, apply here with the guns is that federal law will trump state law, and federal laws regarding the dissemination of information will also trump to prevent that type of event from occurring in the future. Congressman now. Well, I'm, I'm not clear as to why somebody who owns guns minds people knowing about it. I'm well, well I, I've got an answer for that. If I own a gun, I don't want my name published that everybody knows I own a gun. Why? What are you ashamed of? I'm not ashamed of anything. But what I don't want are the thugs in Southeast uh -huh. that might come. And not to take away, I live in Washington, D.C., Southeast. But I don't want some thug coming into my coming into my home and robbing me for my gun. Well, well, you've got a gun, you, you can shoot him. Yeah, that's right. Right. I'm not there all the time. Well, I don't think... I don't think the public disclosure of somebody's weapons in their home is a magnet for current criminals. Come to the house. I think it's a magnet. I think, I think it's a thing to keep.
keep them away. But but it, but I, I disagree. But but, but that, that <laughs> I think that, that if somebody it depends on what one's motive is. Now if they know you've got a particular kind of weapon and it's one that they cherish, they might stalk you and try to get in. But but if if I'm worrying about a common burglary, which is a much higher uh, likelihood of occurring, I think the people are interested in those who don't have a gun, or at least don't have a gun registered. At least it's a chance that there's no gun there. Yeah. But I, that's not to say that I think this is a good idea to publish this information. And I think that the newspapers that did this found themselves chastised and embarrassed, and some have apologized, and we're not seeing a mass movement. The only time you can even do that is when you've got a pretty extensive uh, gun registration system. You've got one in New York. You've got one in a couple of other states. So this is not going to be a big problem. Having said that, I agree that there ought to be some kind of federal rule that 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 prohibits uh, disclosure just for the for the general good. But all of this kind of stuff feeds both sides in distress, anger, suspicion, and so on. Well, I I think that that, that the newspaper who did it did it for for. Uh, for the reasons that newspapers have done a lot of yellow journalism for a long, long time, you know, uh, I wouldn't support doing that. But I'm still puzzled about why people that own guns have this huge objection to it. Uh, well, I, it, 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 to me, I, I mean, it, taking away just the publication of, you know, I have a certain right to privacy. The fact that I have a constitutional right to own a gun, I have a certain right to privacy. I just don't want everybody knowing I own a gun. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think that's a very reasonable standard of privacy. I, I don't really disagree with it, but on the other hand, I wouldn't get all exercised if they did it. I, I absolutely would. Well, then the fact of the matter is that in, the, in some of these states, registration is a matter of public record. All that the, the newspapers did up in uh, the Northeast was go to the public records, look it up, see you had a registered firearm, and then print the list. It's, anybody could go and find that out. They couldn't just pick up a newspaper and read a list of hundreds, thousands of names, see who's in the neighborhood, and so on. Uh, that's what was the controversy. But the information is public now in those typically in those states that require registration. So now, so now the criminals have to go through a little effort to make sure they're not going to some place where the guy's got a gun. Well, I, but, but taking away the whole publication, the list though, when we talk about gun control, the one word that we have not heard out of anybody on the fringe of either side is the word sensible. There is no sense of sensible gun control measures that are being put out there. The only two people that I know that are talking sensibility in all of this are Senator Joe Manchin and now Senator Pat Toomey out of Pennsylvania, a, the Democrat uh, junior senator out of West Virginia, and the junior senator Republican out of Pennsylvania. They seem to be the two conduits that are going to try and bridge this, but the power of the NRA is a strong lobby, Alan Moore. Well, I'm amused that our moderator has has decided that only two senators are sensible, and that everybody else is not. Um, I think come on, come senator. on. <laughs> um, there's, it's, it's all in the eye of the beholder. The people on one side think they're very sensible, and they may see political advantage. The other side 
thinks it's very sensible and may see political advantage. This is how the process works. Well, it sorts itself out. I'm very glad that Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania is now engaged with uh, with the, the Republican with Joe Manchin from from uh, from West Virginia. In defense of, of, of Justin, this is an issue that has become extremely emotional, and they those issues always get silly, and you always have you always have the extremes, pros and cons that get sillier and sillier, and uh, and, 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 and and I think the anti-gun people get a little silly sometimes too, uh, wanting too much and, and, and claiming too much uh, of it. Uh, but uh, silly is, is... Yeah, Carl, hold on. <coughs> and I'll shut up and let uh, Carl go. Carl Tubin. Just saying that, that there's some merit to your concern. Yeah, Carl Tubin, go ahead. Well, let's also let's also look at the states that they, they represent, and that's Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And both of those states have people who are who are very pro-gun, and it's uh, it's it in my mind, uh, it's a gutsy uh, a stand for the two of them to take, and a leadership stand, um, from my point of view. Bob Hines, if I could just step back for a moment, we've been talking about two very important pieces of legislation today: gun control legislation and immigration. Isn't it nice to think that our Congress is seriously debating important issues for the first time in some time? But you, and it's important that they are. And it's nice to see bipartisan, cross-party cross issues in both houses. But Bob, are we really seeing that? Are we, I mean, yes, we are. Where? Well, I think I think that we, I got Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey. Those are the only two bipartisan that have come out publicly. Well, now said, wait a minute, wait. That's Public, not true. That's not fair. There's a there's a number of people in the Senate who are trying to find a solution to the gun to gun control. How much do we do? How much? What do we not do? The same is true with immigration. And it's a legit to me. It's a kind of a. It's nice to see Congress finally acting like what we, the general public, would have hoped they'd do it on all the stuff, but they don't. Denise Crack. The question I'm going to have is, what happens when they go to conference? I, I mean, as a person who was in the minority as a Democrat and then a majority, when we were in the minority, more than once our Republican counterparts when we were in conference didn't even let us in the room. They would say. You're in the minority, we're the majority, toodles. So the question is going to be, when we start talking to the House, because you can talk about all the senators you want who's on the House side, are they actually going to work with one another, or is it going to be a purely Republican piece of legislation that has no Democratic input? Well, that, that's one of the benefits of being in the majority, though, Denise. I mean, you know that. Better than I anybody. know that. Alan Moore, you're rocking back and forth. No, I'm 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 remembering once upon a time in my early days in the Senate when uh, when uh, the, the the Republicans controlled the Senate and the Democrats controlled the House, and whenever we went to conference on anything, um, it was uh, we'll deal with the Democrats because they called the shots. And I was once the the staff director of a Senate committee, and we worked across the aisle with with Al's old committee, the uh, the Energy and Commerce Committee, and his chairman John Dingell. It would have been nice to include the, the 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 Republicans, but 
but the Democrats chose not to. They didn't have to. They had the votes. That's how it worked. We, the how, that's why the, one of the reasons the House is very different from the Senate. We have a caller. Caller from the 720 area code. You're on the air with Backroom Politics. Yes, I'm listening to the conversation about the integrated North Korea and the backdoor deals that the Democrats would conservative think the Democrats. Y'all just, the conservative party just in corrupt United States and just and put this country in madness. And if, <coughs> and if y'all proud of this, y'all going to burn in hell with this madness that y'all done throwed against this country. This hateful stuff. I'm sorry that black man won. I'm sorry he drove y'all ass crazy. You're losing your mind. So it just show you, you're still stuck on stupid. You're acting like your grandparents back in the 50s and the 60s. So what you need to do, get a grip of yourself. Ask God to forgive you because you're going to burn in hell with all this hateful stuff with the conservative party is out to get. We can't help it that the American dream stressed out for everybody. It ain't just for a bunch of fat conservative men, especially fat conservative white men, who just sit on here and just sound like a bunch of mad, crazy people because y'all mad because other people enjoying America size, y'all. Y'all just a hateful group of people, and you're going to burn in hell with all this hatred that you Pre- appreciate the call, sir. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, but seriously. I mean, but I don't want to burn in hell. Well, oh, you're going to burn in hell anyway. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're a Democrat. <laughs> no, you're an atheist. That's why you're going to burn in hell. So, and, and, but, and now you're not one of the conservatives. Well, that, that's funny because you know he's talking. I got more Democrats than I do Republicans at the table right now. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. This is an issue when you look at what happened in Newtown, when you look what happened in Aurora, Colorado, when you look at what happened in Virginia Tech. The the, the loss of innocent lives at at the end of a gun barrel is just tremendous. However. Today, we saw in Lone Star College in Houston, outside of Houston, Texas, we saw 14 people injured in a knife attack. You know, are we going to start outlawing knives now? Are we going to start regulating knives? Well, Alan Moore. What's interesting here, 14 people hurt too critically. Nobody's dead yet. If that dude had had an assault weapon, we can be sure there would be a bunch of deaths. So I'm not, I don't know what the lesson of all of that is other than that if if there's going to be some crazy person attacking people, I'd much rather that person was attacking with a, with a knife than with a gun. Having said that, all of the proposals that we're talking about today, sadly, 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 none of them would have clearly prevented a Newtown or an Aurora or a Virginia Tech. And I say that with sadness, but with recognition that we have to need have a little bit of humility in our what our ability is to to prevent these things. I'm all for toughening up the rules. Believe me, I am. I think they're too loose, but I'm also realistic and enough to understand some of our. We're coming up. On, we're coming up with a break. Congressman Al, last just quickly, last word. I, I totally agree with Alan on this. That if, if if in fact those of us who are for some restrictions on guns and some registration and so forth, think that that's going to prevent anybody from ever getting killed by a gun, we're out of our minds. That will continue. It will. The hope is it will sharply reduce the number that happen that way. I think, I think you're absolutely right, Al. I mean, I think it's important that we have some regist- gun registration. 
but I don't see that it's necessarily going to stop anything. Right. Well, that being the case, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the legacy and the grace that was Baroness Margaret Thatcher, former Prime Minister of, uh, of Great Britain, the first female Prime Minister of Great Britain, a Tory, uh, who passed away yesterday at the age 87. We're going to remember her when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Uh, Congressman Howe, uh, 
she was in power around the same time that you were seated in Congress, yes. uh, was a staunch ally of uh, Ronald Reagan and his uh, buildup of defense issues. What do you remember about Margaret Thatcher? Well, I remember that she was she was a Ronald Reagan without charm. Uh, she was strong. Uh, Iron Lady, I think, is an accurate description of her. Uh, but she didn't. She didn't have that magic that Reagan had to charm those who disagreed as well as those who agreed. She was. She was just tough. And uh, she. As Bob just reminded me, she was the longest-serving prime minister of the history. 20th century. And uh, and she was impressive as hell. You know. Well, you're talking about a lady who literally, the, the daughter of a grocer, uh, who literally started at the very bottom, running for parliament, unsuccessful her first two runs, finally got elected, Bob Hines, uh, and then you look at somebody who never aspired to be not just head of party, let alone prime minister, and become one of the most influential political figures of the late 20th century. That's got to give... Uh, a, a lot of people the ability to say, hey, we can have an effective influence in how we're governed. I think that, and I... Uh, Congressman Al? And, and I... I'm sorry, Bob, I, I'll make this brief. I, I, I said that she was Reagan without charm, uh, which is maybe a little cruel. Uh, but the fact that she could overcome her, her lack of the charm that I think... Well, she was British. I mean, you know, we're not expecting a Hollywood actor and a British housewife to be in the same capacity. The fact, the fact, yeah, you sexist pig. What? Uh, <laughs> wait, no, wait, 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 wait. I want to defend myself on this. She would be... I said first... that with all love. Oh, I know, but still. No, I got a dirty look. I got a dirty look from Denise. One of the great, great factors about Margaret Thatcher, in my opinion, I hugely love them. She was the face of Britain as I was growing up, being a huge fan of Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is as I was growing up as a teenager in Massachusetts and Florida. The reality is, she would be the first one to tell you that she was a housewife when she decided to run for Parliament, and that she still cooked her own breakfast for her and her husband at number 10 Downing Street, didn't want the frills and and attention of being prime minister, she was, in fact, a housewife that got politically active and made success. She may have been a housewife, but she was one incredibly intelligent and educated woman who succeeded and overcame not only the fact that she was being, that she was female in an era where most people were housewives, but she was from a class, and since Britain is a very class-based society, she overcame that class system and became awareness and a prime minister. Agree. And what what I was about to say when I was so rudely interrupted Excuse me. By, by, by the anti-feminist <laughs> over here uh, was... His gun nut. That, 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 <laughs> civil, civil, we'll all be civil. Uh, <laughs> I, I've now forgotten what I was going to say. Alan Moore, Alan Moore, what, what made... I know what I was going to say. Go ahead, Congressman Allen. <laughs> that, that, I made the remark that she didn't have Reagan's charm. She overcame that. 
Yes. That was her political capacity, her intelligence, and her in, uh, her strength that she could plow through all of that and still be as big a force, and she was now, a huge force, uh, in, in world politics, let alone Great Britain. You know, Alan Moore, when we talk about, you know, largely the term Iron Lady is affiliated with Margaret Thatcher was a term that was written about her in Red Star, the military newspaper of the old Soviet Union. They were the ones who coined that term. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, was not without controversy. Uh, her handling of the miners' strike, with some say in the miners' union, uh, who the head of the miners' union yesterday uh, was quoted as saying, good riddance, uh, she was thought of using a very heavy hand in dealing with that and, and other labor issues. And uh, a lot of people in the Western has anybody, allies... Has anybody asked air traffic controllers about Ronald Reagan? Well, same thing, but, you know, there was a violent uprising in the miners' union. That and uh, the Falkland Islands War was something that she largely believed was her own decision. She had people inside her own party saying, don't do this. All right. L let's remember just a couple things about about this woman, because we seem to have forgotten when we were referring to her as a house, housewife. I think that was a term that she used to try to, to, to on herself, to make her seem like a regular person. Which she was. Which she was not by the time she she became active in politics. Her, she was an only child. Her father was a grocer, very active himself in local politics. She hung around with her dad. She became very interested. She went off to Oxford, where she did extremely well and was active politically in Oxford. Then she was beginning to get involved in politics. Along the way, she met this divorced man 20 years her senior and married him and had, and had twins and no problem with that but she continued to apply herself in this political environment it challenged for a woman in any country at her time she overcame that and she figured out a way to to continue to work in politics and balance her home responsibilities I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody who's a housewife. I don't think she was one. That's all. She was an accomplished woman, well involved in politics before she got married and before she got involved. When she did emerge as the leader, that was sort of an accident the way that occurred. She was supporting another guy who pulled out and she just pursued it, became the leader of the party. And a minority party, and then lo and behold, within a few years, she was prime minister. She found a country on the decline, on the steep decline, where redistribution of income was more important than generation of income. And she decided and had enough of a following to totally modify and change this gentrified system of of public ownership of mines, of airlines, of companies of all kinds, she privatized it. There was a lot of pain and suffering involved, not just for unions. Before she ever became prime minister, she was a she was one of the other governmental ministers who was ordered by the, the by, the, by the treasury to stop giving free milk in the schools. Right. It wasn't her choice, but she implemented it, and that became that hung like an albatross around her neck. Except over time, people began to realize, you know, we can't afford everything we're doing. It was a wrenching, difficult transition, but she helped bring it, uh, the, the, the U.K. 
into the modern age, uh, economically speaking, a lot of broad-based benefits and some individual suffering that was part of it. She, I mean, one of the great quotes that I remember about Margaret Thatcher is, I'm going to paraphrase, is that she, she took Britain from being a, you know, government give me to a let me build my government type of government. Uh, when, you know, even David Cameron paid homage to it and saying that she, she cured Britain's illness. She saved Britain at a time that, arguably, Britain was on the brink of financial collapse. Bob Hines. I venture to say that in all the things that will be said about Margaret Thatcher tonight on all the news programs will not be as articulate, as accurate, and as sound, and as uplifting as what Alan just said. Here, here. He was a hundred percent right. Absolutely, I agree with that. Just, it was, you know, this was a this was a spectacular person who came up from lower middle class, right, and assumed a position that was almost exclusively uh, a position of of those who are well to do in the upper class of England and men. over history, and she was the first woman. She was the longest serving prime minister. In the 20th century, we all tend to think about how great Mr. Churchill was, and obviously the things he did during the war were magnificent. But we, we, he got voted out of office. Now, one more thing, interesting. She didn't lose her position. She withdrew. She lost her position because her own party threw her out. Right, and that's John Major, that was John Major who sent it into the exactly. prime ministership. So, I mean, it, it, she has an amazing career. Well, but when you look but at she had she had she she got her she got she got back at that. She once described John Major. It's too bad that he isn't a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very true. Yeah, very true very statement. True. But when, when you look at you know when, when we think of great British leaders, we look at. Um, we, we think of automatically Churchill. Churchill, and I'm a huge student of Churchill, arguably Churchill was very much a self-promoter. Margaret Thatcher was the anti-Churchill. Margaret Thatcher, once she left number 10 Downing Street, did not seek the limelight. In fact, for the past seven years, although in somewhat failing health, more recent than not, she never went back and sought the limelight. She just wanted her old, quiet life where she lived partially with her husband, Dennis, and then after Dennis passed away, she basically went away in quiet solitude, which she enjoyed. When we look back at the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, will she be viewed on the same level, or will she surpass Churchill in great British leaders of our time? I'll start with Congressman Allen and go around the table. I would argue that she will not simply because of Churchill's way with words. Interesting, Bob Hines. Uh, it's one thing to, here's the way I'd look at it. When you're the prime minister uh, in 1940 and Hitler has bestride Europe and everybody else, the whole rest of Europe is on their back, the fact that what Churchill did is probably the most dramatic thing that one man has ever done in, in my lifetime as a, as a leader of a government, quite frankly. I don't think that'll ever be overcome. But it would also be fair to say 
that Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher had more to do with bringing England, Great Britain, into the modern, you know, post-war success-building, you know, the economic system than anyone could have ever expected. She was fantastic. And I think that she is clearly as close to being equal with Churchill as you can get. It's only the difference between saving saving the country and sa you know saving the country from an invader and saving the country from itself. Carl Tubin, what say you? Well, you know, she was a, a sterling figure on the national scene, and I think I think you have to say that both Churchill and Mrs. Thatcher had in their own time the the greatness the sh the, sh the shower of greatness uh, Churchill got the UK through the war then he was soundly defeated in 1945 but he came back 2 years later to win re-election she unfortunately was thrown out by a younger element in the conservative party and uh, she went she she said in, in that regard she had enough and she retired but what everyone has said about bringing England in, into into the modern era is absolutely true, and she'll be remembered for that. Hopefully, remembered for that uh, for a long, long time. All right, uh, Denise Krepp, I'll give you the last word on this. Justin, I mean, Margaret Thatcher not only inspired England, but she inspired women of my generation and your generation to go into politics. Right. Like you, I mean, I was a teenager when she was there. But I was living in Europe at the time, and, and to hear the European press and, and to see, you know, the way in which she was um, admired inspired not only the Europeans, but many American women to go in and say, you know what, we may not have a female American president, but we have a British prime minister that we can look up to. And that, that inspiration is now leading many a woman to go into Congress and hopefully one day will lead us to have a U.S. female president. Interesting thought. I'll let that be the last word. Uh, again, our, our thoughts and condolences go out to the Thatcher family uh, to, uh, and, and, and to the residents of, of Great Britain. It, truly a huge loss uh, of, a, of a truly great, great woman and great figure in politics globally. Um, with that, a hard transition, but it's now time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story. We talk about all the innuendo buzz of what's happening inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway. Anything we can scoop Anybody on Congressman Al, tell me a story. I can't scoop anybody, uh, but let's go back to the beginning of the program where we were talking about immigration. There's a wonderful story about a family that moved here from Europe somewhere, and they found that their name was uh, a hindrance. Uh, there was prejudice and what have you, and so they asked one of their younger sons to go through the New York telephone directory and find the most common name they could find and that they would use that as their name. And, and they are still known today as Leibowitz. <laughs> wow. We waited that long for that. Bob, tell me a story. Help me out here, please. If I stop laughing. Uh, with respect to the, uh, the, uh, the immigration question, one of the most interesting situations uh, in that fight that struggle in the Senate is Senator Mar Marco Rubio. Uh, he is the uh, he's a darling of the Tea Party. 
He's an, he is an Hispanic American, a Cuban, Cuban Hispanic American, uh, and he is one of the uh, Gang of Eight, one of the leadership of the Gang of Eight, and he may be the single most important person in that group, uh, maybe next to uh, Mr. Schumer, uh, to get something to get something done. Uh, I admire him a great deal for that because he also obviously is a person who has been talked about as a potential Republican nominee uh, you know four more years uh, that with that without you know without without getting that letting that get in the way he is doing he's doing some very hard work that will probably make some of his followers uh, feel that he has let them down but he continues to work that way and I and I have a great deal of admiration for him because he is doing it he's doing some real tough work on a real tough issue right. in a way that is not necessarily in his favor. Right. Carl, two minutes, two minutes. tell me a story. <clears throat> I'll tell you a story. Um, I was listening to uh, the news this morning, and uh, Dennis Thatcher was um, a wonderful husband and a wonderful support system for, uh, for the uh, prime minister. And he was also a very funny person, and he was not without... Uh, making a answering a question uh, with uh, from the press with a funny answer, and uh, one time they were talking to him, and they were asking him about his relationship with Mrs. Thatcher, and he said, when Mark Anthony went into Cleopatra's bedroom, he did not go for conversation, and everybody on the program laughed, but he, and, he, and he he came out with other comments. To, um, which really kind of helped her um, in, in her work and, and what she did, but also made him look like just a, a, a common everyday person with a good sense of humor. And thanks for painting that picture for us, Carl. Really appreciate that. Denise Kreft, tell me a story. I'd like to go back to what we were talking about earlier on immigration as well, and talking about representative out of Alaska. Um, he made a rather unfortunate comment last week, which was about 180 degrees different than what Reince Priebus was trying to bring up in the building right across the street from us, where he was trying to convince folks that the uh, Republican Party was going to be the party of inclusiveness and they were going to be attracting others that did not look like themselves. So given what Mr. Priebus wants, I have to wonder how long Mr. Young will be staying in Congress, given the fact that uh, it doesn't seem to... Um, Coincide. Good, I, good I, I would just say this: it, it, it ain't going to hurt him in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Alan yeah. Moore, tell me a story. It's hard to be too hard on somebody for telling an old story and showing his age, which he certainly did that day. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the uh, the United Nations, from time to time, comes together on a new treaty, and it passed one just last week. It wasn't the most visible thing in the world, but it it was called the Arms trade treaty, a set of international rules that signatory countries would agree to follow when selling arms. We're not talking about nuclear weapons here, but we're also not talking just about we're talking about guns. We're talking about conventional we're talking about artillery, we're talking about machine guns, we're talking about the kinds of stuff that the US is the largest producer and seller of right. in the world. Right. And the arms trade treaty, the ATT passed overwhelmingly after seven years of work and it passed 155 to 
three. We can almost tell who the three were. With two countries abstaining, the three were our great friends from Iran, North Korea, and Syria, who all have their own little little differences of opinion. Um, Having said that, I will mention that a a colleague of mine at the Simpson Center, a lovely woman named Rachel Stoll, was a civilian advisor on this thing for seven years. And uh, most of the rest of the people were all in governments. The real question now for the administration is how hard are they going to work to get this thing ratified in the Senate and will the president sign? The NRA jumped up late in the process and said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This could infringe on domestic Second Amendment rights. This, folks... (laughs) Is a major stretch, but a bunch of senators said, "Oh, okay, oh, we got it all. Can't do that. We'll uh, we'll object. Uh, this would be a, an interesting test. It does not begin to raise to the level of the gun control legislation, but it's a follow-on. And and and, and keep your eyes peeled. The the irony is that that much, many of these provisions mirror U.S. law and policy today in what we do and uh, what we buy and sell. But uh, good for the U.N. You know what? Great, great story. Keep an eye on that if you would for us, please. That's a great story. Uh, we've got... I've got a story. But I need to point out that the NRA would object to uh, guns made out of licorice candy. Uh, okay. Not to myself our president of the NRA, but uh, story coming out of my friends in Claremore, Oklahoma, uh, the political writer for the Claremore Daily Progress, uh, political reporter named Salisha Wilkin, good friend of mine, uh, who is a really great up-and-coming political reporter. Her, her publisher, uh, and the paper, the Daily Progress, are being sued by the district attorney of Rogers County because they did an expose on corruption inside the district attorney's office. The story is still breaking, but there is a huge effort and a huge sense of uh, hypocrisy coming out of that part of the country in in an area that says we want less government, less government, but a district attorney that's suing for her ability to create bigger government is absolutely amazing to me. We're going to be tracking this because this is not only a freedom of press issue, which, by the way, according to the stories coming out of Claremore, that all of her uh, sources have been verified, all of the recordings and notes are true, everything is there. They just don't like what's being written. So what do they do? They sue. I guarantee you this is going to make national headlines. I'm going to help promote it make national headlines. This is a freedom of press issue. This has to stop. We're going to keep an eye on that. On behalf of my friends, Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, Carl Thuman, hopefully you'll be here next week. I'll be there. Great. Can't wait to see you. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next week, 4 o'clock Eastern time, on the best political talk show you've never heard of, on Blog Talk Radio Live, from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Boy, is this the place to be. It is now. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us, folks. Bye-bye. It's best if you
it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.